The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Pray together. Gracious Father, we give thanks to you again for your mercies to us. We thank you for the rain and for the other evidences of your kindness toward us. We pray that especially during this uh, week of prayer that we may be conscious of our need of you. We pray that we may be faithful in all that you have given to us. Uh, Give us guidance as we continue our study. May we uh, do this uh, always with a view to sanctifying your name. Jesus our Lord. Amen. <coughs> yes. In case it is necessary to say this, uh, anyone, something on reserve, which is for the whole class, uh, any student who uh, takes something like that away and makes it impossible for the others in the class to use, uh, in my judgment, is guilty of a very serious offense. Uh, if, uh, If you're even tempted to take anything out of reserve, uh, don't do it because uh, I really will do whatever needs to be done to take care of that. So please uh, be very, very uh, careful about that. I do have an extra copy of the book review, and I'll, I'll make sure that's um, um, put back by tomorrow morning at least. Yeah. Just explain quickly why in the second century uh, is Okay, the question about whether or not Gnosticism was present in the first or the second century. Um, the thing to keep in mind is that for the past 30 years or so, there has been a lot of debate among the, the experts themselves as to what is the proper way of referring to this movement and and what kinds of distinctions ought to be made or not. Um, There is, I think, a a strong consensus that if if you think of Gnosticism as as a clearly defined system, that uh, you can find no evidence of that prior to the second century. But there's also a strong consensus that there are certain features of Gnosticism which are certainly, you know, much earlier than the second century. Uh, The very emphasis on the the idea of knowledge, gnosis, uh, the the concern for dualism and so on, uh, in order to distinguish those two forms, the general ideas, certain um, recurring themes, and so on, 
on the one hand, and the more sophisticated, well-developed system on the other. In, or, in order to distinguish between those two, uh, the tendency seems to be to reserve the term Gnosticism for the second century and to use other terms like incipient Gnosticism or simply the term Gnosis for the uh, previous uh, uh, period. Now, for our purposes, uh, one of the reasons this is important is that a number of scholars, Bultmann is the best known here, um, <clears throat> but a number of scholars have taken ideas that are only um, attested from the second century, because that's where we begin to have some kind of literature to help us out with that. And then they have assumed that those things were already present in the first century and that that explains the origin of some ideas in the New Testament. And the argument against that particular viewpoint is, number one, that you just don't have any evidence. I mean, the New Testament we know was written in the first century. These are the things we know were written in the second century. So chronologically, you have a problem. But the other factor, which uh, does not always come into the discussion as it ought to, is that whereas Gnosticism, like the other Hellenistic religious uh, viewpoints in, in, at the time, uh, have a syncretistic character, and they tend to ad ad adopt ideas from a variety of sources, Christianity is exclusivistic in character, and it tends to um, distance itself and reject other forms of, of worship and religion. So when you put both of those things together, it seems, I mean, purely from a human point of view even, it seems highly unlikely that, um, that you could explain uh, some, of the, some of the distinctive features of the gospel as having arisen from a, some kind of Gnostic uh, viewpoint. Now, with, with any of the attributing factors of that, 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 that overshadowing possible uh, confusion due to the uh, mistranslations of the Septuagint, uh, where the early Christians were trying to conform to some of the, trans, some of the Greek mentality or, uh, or no? No, I don't think there's any close connection between those things. I mean, I, I think maybe at that point, maybe you're moving to uh, the broader question as to what extent uh, Greek thought may have affected the development of Christianity, which is a valid question to, to, write, to raise. And, and it is true that someone like Bultmann would also talk about those things. But it is, I think it is a distinct question, yeah. I guess at the end of the hour last time I was beginning to talk about some of these things and, and the relationship between the New Testament and I um, can't remember just, I think I rushed through the end there talking about things like, um, uh, you know, meals. You, know, you have the Lord's Supper in Christianity and you have these sacred meals among the mystery religions or certain kinds of um, uh, ablutions or washings. And uh, the question arises, uh, and people will often argue, well, you see, uh, here Christianity is simply adopting customs or ideas from the pagan world. And um, uh, I think I was making the point that 
you know, these are such common features of life. You know, having a meal together is a universal uh, of human uh, society. It, it is a, a focal point of, uh, of fellowship and, and, and joy and so on. Um, washing, you know, everybody gets dirty and has to get washed, you see. So it's a common universal feature as well. And therefore, uh, what could be more natural than to use these striking features of human life uh, as a symbol of spiritual realities? And, uh, you know, to argue that there must be some kind of organic or genetic connection between one religion and another on the basis of using those features uh, seems uh, more than far-fetched. Besides, and, and maybe this is what sometimes gets people confused here, perhaps the assumption that if God reveals something, which by definition means something new, you see, that therefore it cannot have anything to do with human life. It has to be something totally unique and, and not to be found in any shape or form elsewhere. But we need to appreciate that if God were to reveal something that was totally unique, in other words, I had absolutely no connection whatsoever with our experience, it would be totally, you know, we could not even begin to assimilate or perceive what, we, what is going on. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about here. When, when God gives the law to the people of Israel through Moses and Mount Sinai, the form, first of all, it is given to them in a language that they understand. I mean, that already ought to tell you something. He's, God doesn't use some kind of angelic tongue if there's such a thing. He used, used Hebrew or whatever form of Hebrew so that people could understand it. So in that sense, it is not unique because there are other things that could be said in Hebrew, right? Secondly, he gives a law that has the form of the so-called apodictic laws of uh, the ancient world. And you can see some parallels between some of the laws in, in, uh, in the Pentateuch and some of the laws in the Code of Hammurabi. They are phrased in a similar way. And you might ask, you know, why didn't God give the law in the form of Roman law, which has a, a quite different style and, and uh, the details are form formulated differently. Well, because God wanted want to communicate to his people and so he uses the forms, uh, the, um, the features that the people would be able to make sense of. And in the same way, uh, what could be more natural, you see, than for God to use certain things like uh, eating together or certain symbols like washing or light and so on that um, could be assimilated? So the question is not the use of a language or use of a particular um, practice, you know. Uh, are we going to say, for example, that, that uh, the Christian faith is not unique because it uses hymns on the grounds that there are other religions out there that also, they also sing. Well, singing is another universal of human nature, you see. And, and why should we expect that God says, oh, now, if you're going to be my people, now you can no longer wash or eat together 
or sing because these are things that the other religions do. You know, on the contrary, what happens is that these things are used, but now they're injected with new meaning, you see. And, and uh, they, are, they um, give expression to the unique message of the gospel that it is only through Jesus Christ that we can come to God. So, so try not to mix up the medium, if you will, uh, the, uh, the, the features or the forms that God might use uh, to help his people understand and, and experience the, the message that he's given. Don't confuse that with the actual character and content of that revelation. Yeah? Does that apply uh, equally to uh, Paul using Greek philosophical terms, but not, but not taking the content of the philosophical terms? Sure, you see, and in fact, sometimes the best way, the most efficient way to communicate a new idea is actually to use a certain kind of terminology that people already can connect with, but then give it the uh, different twist. And so Paul will use terms like, you know, Adiaphron, uh, the things that are not uh, that are indifferent, or he may use other other terms or forms of expression that number one reflect perhaps his own education, quite probably. Uh, number two, some of these may be fairly innocuous because some of these terms could have simply become part of the general vocabulary. But I think in the third place, it may be quite deliberate on his part, not as an adoption of those ideas, but precisely the opposite, as a way of making it clear where the differences lie. And, and by the way, I should tell you, with regard to that, Bultmann also uh, did a lot of work on, um, in fact, as, uh, one of his um, academic um, publications, earlier academic publications, was specifically on, uh, on Stoicism, and, and even he recognized, uh, in fact, it was one of his points that uh, the similarities between Stoic language and Paul were, were only superficial. They were uh, uh, at the surface. And, uh, and, and uh, what Paul was doing is giving, giving those terms a new content. Other questions? Yeah. Well, ecstatic uh, speech was not uncommon, uncommon in, in, in those days, whether um, specifically in the mystery religions. I don't know. I'd have to double check on that. I, I don't remember um, any specific linking of ecstatic speech with... Uh, did you know whether there was a, a particular... Religion that was associated with that, or yeah, hmm. I would need to check into that. I, I do not recall offhand. Now, it may be. See, part of the problem is that um, some of the boundary lines get a little mixed up 
you have certain um, groups within the church, for example, late in the second century, the Montanist heresy, so-called, and uh, it is quite possible that some people might begin to see certain links between the, Mon the Montanists and some religions that may have been present at the time, uh, but I just don't recall any concrete uh, references to uh, ecstatic speech as being part of the characteristics of, of any of, of, at least the religions that we're talking about here, like uh, 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 Kai Billy and, and Nice San Osiris and so on. But um, I may have forgotten. Forget things occasionally, yeah. Sorry for belaboring the point. Even the rhetorical, like the rhetorical art. Oh, yeah. Greek used. I'm sure Paul, did, did Paul use? Oh, yes. Yeah, there's no question that there's a, a form called the diatribe, uh, which was common among the Stoics, but not exclusive to them. And that you certainly see in Paul when, when he um, seems to be arguing with an imaginary opponent, you know, shall we sin so that grace may abound? Of course not, you know. Uh, and that kind of style of, uh, of, of rhetoric uh, is definitely not something that Paul invented. Uh, but you can see some of the reflection of his own culture. But again, I don't see any significant difference between using a particular rhetorical form and using the Greek language. And no one accuses uh, Paul of depending on foreign religions or whatever or other philosophies because he happened to use Greek. Mm -hmm. some, some have argued that Paul is using And, and there is a measure of truth in that. There is a measure of truth that form and content are not totally separable uh, um, factors. And uh, I don't, again, I don't think we need to be worried about that. For instance, uh, you could argue that um, by, by merely the use of language, built into any language, are certain presuppositions, certain shared ideas in a community. And therefore, automatically, when um, Paul or any other writer uses Greek, in the very use of Greek, there comes a certain amount of information and ideas associated with it. But again, I mean, you cannot assume that, there's, that any of that content is necessarily uh, pagan, meaning by that that it is incompatible with, um, with divine uh, authority. If a part of what is a shared assumption is that, um, well, there is a past and present and the future, so that the language gives you know, you have verbal forms that indicate past, present, and future. And you might argue, well, you see, um, because Paul uses Greek, automatically there are certain assumptions about the nature of time or something. Well, yes, but come on, uh, what are you really trying to tell me? That uh, we really need a totally new artificial language 
Otherwise, you cannot convey divine meaning. You see, behind all this, which is a more fundamental issue that I should have mentioned before, is the fact that all of the things that I've been talking about in terms of shared ideas, universal features uh, uh, among, you know, in humanity, were not invented by man anyway. I mean, God has created this world. Uh, the, ass the assumptions shared by people, which may be reflected in language, did not come out of a vacuum of some evil pagan. No, they, uh, they are part of God's creation, perverted to be sure, but um, just because somebody, again, uses the, the notion of, of dirt and, and cleansing, um, just because there, there may be some perverted ideas in connection with that, doesn't make the feature itself uh, sinful or, or pagan. Uh, so yeah, there is a measure of truth in the fact that, that the very use of Greek and then the use of certain kinds of discourse, a certain vocabulary and so on, you, you are not escaping some content. But the question is whether that content is inherently incompatible with uh, divine revelation or whether, as a matter of fact, it's part of God's creation anyway, which is now using to uh, bring in his special revelation to people. Um, you call these Greek ideals as well, and so that could be God or God's uh, revelation. It's conceivable, you know, uh, again, uh, just because people are sinful doesn't mean that everything they say is wrong. You know, if, if Aristotle, a pagan philosopher, says to me, you know, um, you ought to take care of your child and not let your child die of hunger, ah, that's a pagan idea, <laughs> you know. Obviously, uh, and when we speak about common grace, uh, we speak of total depravity, but total depravity doesn't mean that people are as sinful as they can possibly be. It means that every part of their, their character is affected by sin, but in God's mercy, uh, there's a lot of truth and, and goodness and whatever that, that uh, is preserved. Otherwise, you know, the world would be outside of, of even the possibility of, of being redeemed. All right, uh, let's move on then to the next uh, section here, capital B, non-Rabbinic Judaism, non-Rabbinic Judaism. This negative is not very helpful perhaps, but uh, I do think that it, it can be of uh, real value to appreciate that we have to distinguish between rabbinic Judaism, which was the form of, it was the form that became mainstream Judaism. I mean, when people talk about Judaism, that's what they have in mind. Uh, the, the, the religious form, which isn't just strictly religious, but has a much broader base than, than that, uh, that originated in so-called rabbinic Judaism. What people realized all along, but we have become much more conscious of lately, is that there were other expressions of Jewish faith and thought in the first century that were not rabbinic in character. 
People realized that uh, all along, but the tendency was to view that as, view those forms as somewhat peripheral groups that had no great significance. Since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have become aware of the fact that non-Rabbinic Judaism may have been even more important than Rabbinic Judaism in the first century. In fact, that it may be misleading to use the term Rabbinic Judaism for the first century. That strictly speaking, if you really want to be picky about this, you could say Rabbinic Judaism was not developed until after AD 70. Now again, there's some debate among scholars about that kind of thing. Uh, namely, how much continuity is there between uh, Rabbinic Judaism after AD 70 from, say, the Pharisees prior to AD 70? And, and we'll get into that question tomorrow. But um, what is important at this point is to appreciate that during the New Testament period, there was a pluriformity of ideas many diverse groups, uh, there were certain common features, all of them viewed the Old Testament as God's word in some sense, and uh, it isn't as though they didn't share some other important features, but nevertheless, forms of expression and ideas and so on, that certainly are different from what came to be known as Rabbinic Judaism, and that's what we need to talk about. You notice that under non-Rabbinic Judaism, I'm making a distinction, um, a threefold distinction, Hellenistic Judaism, then the so-called apocryphal and related literature, and then on the next page, more specifically, Qumran. And... Um, Actually, I guess I have listed, Qumran there is intended to be under the category of apocryphal and related literature. But as we shall see, that, uh, that literature needs to be looked at uh, separately. So it, the main um, distinction is twofold between Hellenistic Judaism and apocryphal, pseudepigraphic literature and so on, on the other hand. Uh, and Qumran creates a special problem that we'll talk about. Hellenistic Judaism is a way of saying that um, you have to take into account a form of Jewish expression that took shape in the Hellenistic world, that is, in the Greek-speaking world. <clears throat> and the historical background to Hellenistic Judaism focuses on this term, the diaspora. Diaspora is the Greek term for dispersion. The Jewish dispersion, that is, a way of identifying the many, many, many Jewish individuals who were not living in Palestine, but were scattered throughout the world. 
the uh, scattering or diaspora of Jews goes back to the Old Testament period. And, um, you know, you could put the, put the beginnings almost uh, anywhere. Uh, is part of the diaspora what took place when the Assyrians came and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel because we are told that they, they would displace people and take them from one country and put them in another and there was a lot of mixture and so on. You could say there was already some diaspora, well, close to one, some diaspora uh, already back in the 8th century B.C. More clearly, at the time when um, the southern kingdom of Judah was being threatened by the Babylonians, there was a significant group of Hebrews who left Palestine, left Jerusalem, among them Jeremiah, and went to Egypt. So that now in the 6th century B.C., you have a quite significant uh, Jewish colony in Egypt, for example, in Elephantine, and you don't need to worry about that term, right, that city right now, but it is one of the better known uh, places where there have been discoveries, for example, of uh, letters and other documents. Um, there was even a temple built in Elephantine. Um, subsequent to that, in the Hellenistic period, it was Alexandria in Egypt that had a, a very, very large population of uh, Jews. In fact, maybe as many as a million of them. You, can, you cannot take very, um, well, let me put it this way. You have to take with a grain of salt any figures about population and, and uh, statistics in the ancient world. Most of them are guesses, some of them informed guesses, some of them wild guesses. But uh, that's one of the uh, statements that I, I believe Josephus is uh, the one who makes a comment about as many as a million uh, Jews in, in uh, Alexandria. That, that may be exaggerated. But uh, certainly you have uh, very, very large populations in Babylon, in Persia. Uh, people who had gone to Antioch, that is in, in uh, northern Syria. Um, by New Testament times, by the period of, uh, of the coming of Jesus and the spread of the gospel, you certainly have large groups of Jews in Asia Minor, including Ephesus, some of the big cities like Ephesus and Corinth and the capital in Rome, large populations. So there was a very significant uh, Jewish presence throughout the Mediterranean world. What does a Jew do in that kind of a setting? And uh, you notice in, in the outline, I have these two terms, confrontation and accommodation. Yeah? Excuse me. I understand how the Jews were removed by the Assyrians in the Babylonian situation and how they would end up in Egypt. But um, I'm, I'm, apparently I'm missing how it is there, what motivated them to settle in Asia Minor or to move to Rome? Well, it's just that um, we cannot trace the migrations, you know, very carefully. But um, the point is that already, once you have a, um, a dangerous political situation, 
you're always going to find significant numbers of people who leave the country and settle somewhere else where they think they can make a life for themselves. So uh, the, uh, the two events that I mentioned, the Assyrian and the Babylonian uh, uh, conquests, were kind of the big events uh, where we can uh, see historically some of these things taking place. But uh, throughout the period, say from about the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, then through the Persian period, and then even more so through the Hellenistic period, we just have to assume that uh, maybe by waves or on a more regular basis, uh, people might leave Palestine and, um, and go to make a life just as people come to the States now from different countries and, and what have you. So it was, a, um, it was the, the result of a, of a long-standing process that, um, that you find now in the first century with, with all these uh, people, uh, Jewish by birth, and not only by birth, but wanting to continue their identity uh, as Jews, in, uh, and therefore being influenced by their environment and also having an effect on their environment. By these terms, confrontation, accommodation, I'm trying to um, um, keep in mind two opposing tendencies or needs, if you will. You cannot possibly maintain your identity if it is a well-defined identity like that of being a Jew would be without confronting this other culture against which you're going now. You have to maintain certain principles, certain customs. Otherwise, your identity just disappears. That necessitates, particularly in the case of Judaism, because of its exclusivistic character, because of its very distinctive ideas and so on, because of its resistance to uh, mixing foreign um, ideas with their tradition. For those reasons, it was especially important for, for Jews to confront the Greek culture and Roman culture and whatever other culture they happen to be facing, respond to it, distance themselves from it in some way, argue against it. That, that's the uh, element of confrontation. But on the other hand, if you want to survive at all, you have to learn to accommodate. You have to learn to live among these people. And uh, this is a uh, difficult situation to be in. Uh, how, how do you hit that balance? It's true even for Christians today. You, you recognize your responsibility of, of maintaining a, a, a clear identity that doesn't get blurred uh, on the other hand, you see a, a responsibility of uh, participating in the culture to some degree. Where do you draw the line? And Christians differ about these things. So the same situation going on in the ancient uh, world. In the context of that tension, Judaism took a form, and that's what we mean by Hellenistic Judaism, that could be distinguished 
from other forms of Judaism. If only because these people would, for example, write in, speak Greek and write in Greek. And uh, it is important for us to understand as part of the whole milieu, uh, which forms part of the New Testament period, that this was a very, very important uh, cultural factor. And in fact, it is almost impossible to understand the spread of the gospel, except in the context of Hellenistic Judaism. Paul himself, you see, was a product of Hellenistic Judaism, at least to some degree. He was born in Tarsus. Uh, we think, although there's some debate about this, that he probably spent his childhood in Tarsus and came to Palestine perhaps as a teenager. Cannot confirm that. Uh, later, uh, he uh, ministers in that area of, of, of Cilicia for about 10 years. We don't have very much information about that, but we know from chapter 9, the end of chapter 9 of Acts, that he was sent back to the region of Cilicia. Uh, in Galatians chapter 1, he, spoke, he speaks about, having, about ministering in that area uh, for an extended period. Now, to be sure, and let me just say this parenthetically, it'll, it'll come up again. In Philippians 3, Paul comes, calls himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And at that point, he may be wanting to distinguish himself from Hellenistic Jews in the negative uh, sense that that might have had. That is, somebody who might have completely forgotten their Hebrew language and, and uh, uh, are so distinctive in the Hellenistic forms that uh, some people might have had the questions about their loyalty to Judaism. You could be a Hellenistic Jew in the sense of living in diaspora and so on and, and still have a great deal of pride in being a Hebrew of the Hebrews. You know, I have, I have retained my Hebrew identity uh, faithfully where others might not. Now, the areas in which this Hellenistic Jewish culture manifests itself are primarily three, as you see here, historiography, exegesis, and philosophy. And I want to say just a little bit about each of them. The, the significance of historiography or history writing is uh, quite important because one of the... Um, fundamental ways in which you preserve your identity, your cultural or ethnic identity, is by not forgetting your history. This, this was especially important for the Jews in a pagan setting because they were frequently criticized as having a backward culture. And one of the ways in which they could respond to that criticism was by showing that they, in fact, had a very rich culture, a very ancient culture. In fact, the Jews could trace their history and their origins further back than, than the Greeks could in some respects. And uh, they took a great deal of pride in being able to, uh, to show that. There were a number of people who 
took it upon themselves to write historical documents. And uh, there are a handful which are, who are significant, but Josephus uh, takes pride of place. We have uh, mentioned him before. Josephus was born in the first century. And um, was a participant of the events in the uh, Jewish war in AD 66 to 70 and so on. He uh, decided, of course, he had some contacts with the Romans even before this. And at one point, he uh, saw that it was inevitable that Jerusalem was going to fall. And he decided to uh, move over to the Romans. Now, he tried to justify that move by saying, you know, saying that he had received a revelation of some sort or whatever. But uh, even to this day, there are many Jews who think of him as a traitor. Nevertheless, he himself uh, spent his whole life trying to defend Judaism. And uh, as I think I mentioned before, his two primary historical documents are the Antiquities of the Jews, most of which is a retelling of the biblical story. But he goes beyond the biblical period and talks about the uh, Maccabean revolt and then into the Roman period and so on. And then the, uh, the other work, the Jewish War, which focuses on that, uh, actually, the Jewish War begins at the Maccabean age. But then he gives a tremendous amount of detail about the war and some of the consequences. And so if it were not for Josephus, uh, we would know only about 5% of the sorts of things that we have been talking about and you have been reading in your book. Uh, he is uh, uh, far and away our primary source for most historical data. Generally speaking, generally speaking, he is a reliable writer. But when you're dealing with an ancient historian, the term reliable is particularly relative. I mean, it's relative even for a modern historian, but uh, it's especially so in the ancient world for a number of reasons. You do not have the resources that we have today. You do not have some of the accepted criteria of history writing you know, and footnoting and using quotation marks and all those little, little things that uh, we insist on today if we're going to call something really uh, historically reliable. And just because an ancient historian uses other forms of, uh, of uh, historical writing technique, and uh, because uh, he might paraphrase what somebody said, and, and he might even... Um, See, some of the ancient historians would do this. They might hear about a particular speech given by uh, an officer. And now the uh, historian gets a little bit of information from this person, from that person. Now the historian reconstructs the speech in, in direct discourse. You know, not just he said such and such, but now this is what he said. And then he reconstructs the speech as partly his invention because there was an accepted form in which to communicate those kinds of details. 
And uh, you always have to keep that sort of thing in mind. Besides, Josephus had his own biases, like everybody else. Some of them are, are more obvious than others. Uh, and uh, when you are able to uh, identify some of these, then uh, you have to uh, read more critically certain portions of his work. When you compare the Jewish war with the antiquities, you find certain discrepancies, or at least apparent discrepancies. And that also helps you evaluate, you know, how, um, uh, how do you, um, uh, how seriously do you take certain things that he might uh, comment on. But in spite of all those qualifications, uh, he is still basically reliable. And uh, so uh, we, we can uh, rely on a great deal of the information he gives us, yeah. Would it be accurate to say that an ancient historian would be more like, um, this work would be more like a modern um, historical novel than like a modern history? No, I think that's going too far. I think that's going too far um, because these writers, I mean, they, you do have historical novels from the ancient world, but, but the people who were considered historians, we, I, I do not believe we have any evidence that they would actually make up a story to illustrate a certain point. Now, they might embellish you see. Uh, they might rely on second, third hand information, and because they don't have all of the data, then they might, you know, liven things up a little bit. All of us do that sometimes when we retell a story, or whatever, sometimes unconsciously. Um, but uh, the actual making up information out of the blue completely, I don't think that's, uh, that, that was the case. No. Exegesis, you know, the term exegesis is a fancy word for interpretation. If you want to make it sound more important, you use exegesis than interpretation. Although it, it does um, have perhaps a, a more specialized meaning because it has to do with, with a rather detailed uh, work of interpretation, uh, in-depth kind of um, work that might include, uh, you know, fairly scientific approach to the language and, and that kind of thing. But in any case, in addition to the writing of history, uh, the Jews of the diaspora spent quite a bit of time interpreting their Bible, uh, the Old Testament. Keep in mind that the work of interpretation did not begin all of a sudden out of the blue in, in this period, already within the pages of the Bible itself, within the pages of the Old Testament, you can see some of the writers of the Old Testament reflecting on and expanding on uh, the Pentateuch, the law, for instance. Or one of the more interesting examples of this is the books of Chronicles, which retell parts of the stories of Samuel King's give other information, and then you can see a certain amount of interpretation or expansion of uh, what you read in, uh, in Samuel Kings. And uh, you can get a little bit of information on that uh, from uh, you know, Dr. Dillard's uh, commentary on Second Chronicles as well. So there was already a tradition, if you will, of biblical interpretation 
going back to the biblical period itself. But uh, needless to say, the Jews interested in, in, in their Bible and trying to figure out what do these things mean and especially what significance do they have for us now who live in a completely different setting, uh, spend quite a bit of time on this matter. The most famous monument to their work of interpretation is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. As far as we can tell, the Septuagint is the oldest example of a um, full-length type of literary translation. Now, obviously, uh, as soon as you have people, two different nations who speak different languages, and they come in contact with one another, uh, translation is born right there. And uh, there must have been a very long tradition of uh, translations in small, in, uh, small scale, uh, certainly um, when you're dealing with diplomatic documents and other kinds of things. And I suppose that there must have been, to some degree, the translation of literary uh, writings as well. But to the best of my knowledge, I don't believe that prior to the, uh, the production of the Septuagint, do you have evidence of a major work, you know, like Homer's Iliad, let's say, being translated to a completely different language. So in a sense, these uh, individuals were pioneers. You know the legend, if you've read some of the materials, you know the legend about the Septuagint was that the, um, the king in uh, Alexandria, Ptolemy II, was building this enormous library, and it, and it became, by the way, the center of, uh, of academic and scientific work uh, in the ancient world. But in building this library, uh, it was brought to his attention that the library didn't have the uh, writings of the Jews. And there was a strong Jewish population in Alexandria. And so uh, the king wanted this, and so these 72 translators were brought from uh, Palestine. Um, the, uh, the idea was to take a number from each tribe and then they were brought to Alexandria. They were put in separate cells. And miraculously, when they were finished with their work, it all agreed. Now, that particular story has um, uh, reference specifically to the translation of the Pentateuch. The term Septuagint comes from the Latin word for 70. Uh, actually, there were 72, according to the, uh, to the legend. But uh, that's how the term began to be used. And uh, you'll hear more about the Septuagint in, um, uh, in your Old Testament introduction course. Uh, the Septuagint is very important for a number of reasons. It is important for textual reasons. Uh, because from time to time, it may give us readings, textual readings that are more ancient than what we have in some of the Hebrew manuscripts. Why is that? Well, I don't want to get into this right now because it gets very complicated. We will deal with textual criticism of a different sort later. But let's suppose that here's Isaiah. This is the book of Isaiah. And somebody makes a copy of it and then copies of copies and so on. 
All these are Hebrew copies. Now, uh, until the, the 1940s, the most ancient Hebrew manuscripts of Isaiah that we had went back only to, uh, let's say, the, um, about the 9th century. Actually, the 10th century, let's say. Of our era, Isaiah lived in the 8th century B.C., so that you had almost two millennia between the time when Isaiah wrote these words and the earliest surviving manuscripts available to us. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, it was a major, major find because all of a sudden you have our knowledge of the Hebrew text taken back a thousand years. So that here's Qumran, and uh, you have, uh, let's say that this, this is a document from Qumran or whatever. Now we have a much a smaller time period in between the original. As you understand, the longer time you have and the more copies are made, whenever a copy sits down to write, that copyist is not inspired. You understand that? I mean, it's as if you sat down to write something. You're going to make some mistakes. And the more, more time passes and more copies are made, the more uh, corruptions, uh, textual corruptions, as they are called, may be introduced. And so some scholars used to say, well, we cannot really trust the so-called Masoretic text, the Hebrew documents we have, because look at all the uh, time that, that elapsed. When the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, what do you know? The text is basically the same. There are some differences, but they're not major differences. And so all of a sudden, uh, there was a great deal of renewed confidence in the um, reliability of the, of the textual transmission of the book of Isaiah in particular. Nevertheless, think of this situation. When um, the Septuagint translators sat down to translate, they would have had a copy of the Hebrew text, you see, that, may have, that would have been much older even than the Dead Sea Scrolls. So when you look at the Septuagint, now here you have the LXS, LXX, for 70. I understand one time a teacher um, asked the students, now what, what does this abbreviation mean? And uh, one student said, um, love and kisses, professor. <laughs> um, anyway. This Greek translation would be based on, on manuscripts that are older than the other Hebrew manuscripts available to us. Doesn't mean that the Septuagint always has a better text because there are other problems with the Septuagint. They might have translated wrongly or in the transmission of the Septuagint text problems could have crept in and, and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, uh, you can understand, I hope, how an ancient translation can be very important for a Hebrew scholar in taking into account certain problems. Um, that's all that I want to say right now because you will be given a lot of information about this problem in the spring. 
But just to alert you at this point that the Septuagint is important for several reasons. One of them is this, a textual one. I'll give you one example just so that to make things concrete here. In Genesis chapter 4, uh, where you're told that uh, Cain um, and Abel, you know, the story, there's one point where the Hebrew text said, after uh, Cain found out that God wasn't pleased with his offering, Cain said to his brother Abel, no, um, yeah, Cain said to his brother Abel, They went out to the field, and Cain killed Abel. And it, you get the impression that something is missing in the text. Cain said to his brother Abel, then when they were out in the field, killed them. Now, if you look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation, it says, then Cain said to Abel, his brother, let us go out into the field. And when they were out in the field, he killed them. Now, that is what we call a textual difference between the surviving Hebrew texts and the Greek translation. Textual difference. Now, the problem is, which one is right? Because you see, the Greek translator might have had the same problem you and I are having. So, oh. Well, he must have told him, let us go out to the field. So he puts, let us go out to the field. But it may also be that the Hebrew text that he was translating had those words, and for some reason they dropped out in the transmission of the documents uh, of the Hebrew, the, the regular Hebrew tradition. And it's a very interesting uh, work, you see, for a textual critic uh, sometimes to decide. Uh, by the way, your translations probably say something like, and, uh, and Cain spoke with his uh, brother Abel. And that doesn't, doesn't sound so, uh, you know, abrupt, but it's still a problem. Anyway, we'll, we'll go back to this in a couple minutes.